tremendously excited to welcome uh, my guest for today is Nick Timoros, the chief economics correspondent for the Wall Street Journal. He's the author of Trillion Dollar Triage, and he's reporting on the economy, but in particular, the Federal Reserve uh, is some of the most uh, value reporting in the world. Nick, I want to, you know, we're recording this the morning of July 26th, so the FOMC meeting has started. Uh, tomorrow at 2 p.m. and at 2.30, we're going to get the results. Uh, likely, it is the 75 basis point hike, the triple, not the quadruple that was uh, briefly expected uh, by the market. We're going to get into all of that. Uh, but first, I want to ask a question, which is, why is the Federal Reserve uh, so keen on letting the market know what the rate hike is going to be? You know, let's say with the, let's say the actual Fed funds rate is going to be 50 on tomorrow. Uh, if if the market's pricing in 75, that would worry the Fed, and the Fed would you know put out some speakers and 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 sort of let the market know that hey, actually it's going to be 50. Why is the market? Why is why is the Fed so keen on uh, not surprising the market? Well, that's a good question, Jack. It's great to be back on your show. Um, I, you know, I did an interview in mid-May with Chair Powell, um, a virtual interview here in New York, and. Um, I asked him that because at the time the Fed had been guiding uh, the public to expect 50 basis point increases at the June and July meetings. That's what Powell had come out at the May meeting and said. And the question I posed was, why not just strip the Band-Aid off and do 100 at your next meeting? And he and his answer, uh, and we posted a transcript of this so you can you can look for it. It's at the Future of Everything Festival. And, and his answer was, we like to work through market expectations. Uh, and and the reason the Fed has done that this year is that they, you know, to the extent that they felt like they were behind the curve back in March when they were lifting off. Right. They were still at zero uh, in March. Uh, so guidance has actually allowed them to tighten ahead of actual rate increases um, and, you know, that's interesting. I have a story today about, you know, the Fed first pioneered guidance about 20 years ago. Ben Bernanke said he was trying to convince his colleagues, he was a governor then, and he was trying to convince them that if you actually get the market to do some of your work for you, then you make monetary policy more effective. He said that, you know, uh, uh, monetary policy is a, is a cooperative game. Uh, ambiguity has its uses in, in, in poker, for example, but you actually want the market to try to, to row alongside you here. Now, forward guidance, of course, was more common and it was really pioneered by then Chair Bernanke years later when the Fed had interest rates pinned near zero. And so it was a way to try to you know squeeze a little more juice out of the fruit when you didn't want to cut rates below zero because the Fed doesn't want to have negative rates. So uh, so guidance was really something that was used, you know, beginning a decade ago. You had the summary of economic projections and the dot plot. And this was supposed to be a way to sort of guide markets to understand how your reaction function was changing, the way that you would interpret incoming data. So what's different, been different about this cycle this year is that uh, Powell, Jay Powell has actually used guidance to tighten policy. The Fed actually began, I mean, if you if you listen to what they've been saying for the past few months, they're pointing to the two-year, right? And they're saying, well, look, actually, you know, technically they started to tighten policy in November because that was when they began to signal they might raise rates. They pulled forward, right? They pulled forward the end of the taper, the end of asset purchases into March. And it was really at that point that the market began to say, okay, 
you know, we'll price in uh, higher interest rates starting in March. And so, um, you know, and that was the answer that Powell gave at Sintra last month when he was asked by the moderator, uh, you know, whether the Fed was being led by the markets. And he actually said, you know, if you when he said, I think I have the quote today, he said, when you look back, when people look back at the history of, of this cycle, they're going to see that, um, he said, we were able to have financial conditions tighten quite substantially, and we've had only had three meetings at which we raised rates. So that's sort of the argument for forward guidance, forward guidance in a tightening cycle that, you know, in, in this go around, the Fed has actually been able to tighten financial conditions. You really see it in the mortgage market. You had mortgage rates, you know, touching 6% a month ago when the Fed uh, did the seven, the first 75 basis point increase. And um, Charlie Evans, the Chicago Fed president, uh, spoke about this in New York um, in mid-May as well. You know, he said, look, if the chair had gone into the March meeting when inflation was at wherever it was then, 7 8% and said, all right, we raised rates by 25 basis points and there had been nothing else. There had been no press conference. There had been no dot plot. Uh, you know, I think Evans basically said, gee, that would have been really hard, right? You people would have said, what's what's wrong with you guys? Why aren't you doing more? But they were able to use sort of their suite of communications uh, to tighten conditions without doing something that would be uh, extremely disruptive. I think to get to your question now, you know, the, the question now, I think at this meeting, and you've seen a number of analyst notes in the past few days, Goldman and J.P. Morgan saying, you know, maybe the Fed's going to want to fuzz it up here uh, and be less specific about the next meeting. Because, again, in May, Powell went in and said uh, the most likely outcome would be a 50 in June and July. That was, I think he said, that where the committee, you know, the, the center of the committee was. But then they went into 75 after the May CPI was hot uh, a few days before the June meeting. And then again, as, as you noted, right before uh, this meeting, before the blackout, period began uh, a week ago, you had two weeks ago, you had another hot, very hot, broad based uh, inflation report, the June CPI and markets began to price in 100. And so, you know, there are some people now, uh, and I quote Bill English, the former director of the Monetary Affairs Division at the Fed saying, maybe this isn't helpful anymore. Maybe it was helpful to kind of bracket some of the volatility. You still had a lot of volatility, obviously, but maybe you would have had more um, when you really kind of open up Pandora's box of, well, you could do 25, 50, 75, 100, who knows? But I think the other question is, you know, it's easier probably to do this when there's a clear consensus on the committee. And maybe that still exists for the September meeting. But as you think about the terminal rate and where the committee might want to have rates at the end of the year, uh, I think you could begin to see more division uh, you know, you have everybody in the June SEP projecting a rate above 3%. Uh, that was notable, right? Because you definitely didn't have that in the March SEP. Uh, but now you've heard people like Jim Bullard recently come out and say, yeah, I was in favor of getting the three and a half by the end of the year, but now I think it's going to need to be four. You've had other hawkish people like, um, you know, Governor Bowman saying, she wanted to do a 75 and then continue with 50s after that. Uh, but you could begin. We haven't really heard a whole lot of dubs. There aren't a lot of dubs right now. 
But as the economy slows and you see more threats to growth here, you have to wonder uh, how much longer the consensus to keep doing big rate increases will hold. Yeah, and I just want to really hone in on that point is that the value of forward guidance is being able to tighten monetary conditions by letting the market know what you're likely going to do in the future rather than just tightening them now. Um, so, you know, in your article that came out earlier this morning, as you say, uh, Powell noticed that uh, bonds, bond yields, uh, mortgage rates had uh, spreads have widened significantly more than they would if they were just uh, starting that that cycle. So if that's sort of the phase one of this cycle, uh, why is it that we might be more inclined to sort of a 50-50-50 uh, um, sort of a, a, a steady uh, tightening of financial conditions because, you know, pretty we're, we're approaching the terminal rate pretty quick. I mean, you know, we're- when you say 50, 50, 50, you're talking about 50 basis points, September, November, December. Yes. Yeah. I mean, I don't know. I don't think they know. I, I, I don't know. I mean, here's an exercise. Go back to January, the January FOMC. And I tweeted, I think either before or after the meeting, I just went through all the analyst notes, what their Fed call was at that time. And I was looking at it the other day. It's very dated now. But almost everybody around then was saying three hikes this year, four hikes this year. You know, you had B of A, Ethan Harris way out on a limb saying seven quarter. These were all quarter point hikes. Maybe Nomura had a half point increase uh, in there. So. Um, you know, you go back and look at that now, you know, six months ago, the, the, all the Fed watchers at all the big banks thought uh, things would look, you know, very different from where they are now. So I think it's really, I mean, trying to say where things are going to be uh, six months ahead in this environment, it's just extremely difficult. And I'm not sure anybody can have a, a huge amount of confidence where the terminal rate is, you know. I also go back to 2018, September of 2018. I remember being at a conference at the Boston Fed where a number of people, uh, either former Fed uh, uh, policymakers like Roger Ferguson or very sharp outside analysts like Jan Hatzius at Goldman Sachs were saying terminal rates higher. You know, the Fed's going to have to do a lot more than they say they're going to have to do. People were talking about a terminal rate above 3%. And uh, of course, the Fed did just one more rate increase after that at the December meeting. Uh, you know, the market puked, the Fed pulled back, inflation was was defying the Fed's forecast of rising a little bit above 2% and in fact was not up to two. So the Fed just, you know, called called an end to it. Powell called an end to it there. So, you know, you go back to that cycle, people thought the Fed would have to do more and the Fed didn't. Is, is it going to be like that again this time? Obviously, that's what the market thinks. But maybe, you know, Maybe everybody's going to be wrong again the way they were at the end of January. And if inflation is stickier than the market expects, if it's more inertial, you know, you've got this uh, tailwind now from the shelter inflation, uh, which is going to add, you know, uh, a half point to core PCE over the next year, uh, I think 1.1 percentage points. This is an analysis from the San Francisco Fed a few months ago. I mean, the the way the shelter inflation alone is calculated, it's very lagged. So if you're actually looking for monthly deceleration in uh, the inflation prints, which is what someone like Governor Chris Waller has said, he wants to see, you know, 0.2 to 0.3. 
if you're going to be getting a lot of uh, sticky inflation from shelter, then you're going to need even more deflation or disinflation from all of the things that you know people have been looking for: used cars, uh, airfares, commodities. So we'll see. I mean, what if what if the market's wrong again and the terminal rate's closer to four? I talked to to a, you know a trader yesterday who said I think the terminal rate's going to be above five percent. Um, and so you've got a pretty wide distribution of possibilities, probabilities here. Maybe, I don't know, maybe that's another reason to sort of fuzz up the forward guidance here, because, you know, I think what Powell said in response to a question at the last press conference was, you know, we'll see as we go, we'll learn as we go. And if they have to do more, they'll do more. Um, and, you know, the real difficult questions, I think, start to arise as you see, uh, more slowdown in the growth numbers, but what if the inflation, uh, you know, what if the inflation numbers either lag or don't cooperate and continue to get worse? People want to know, of course, what the Fed's reaction function is in that situation. People ask me all the time. I'm not sure the committee even knows because you know the committee spent a lot of time uh, during the framework review in 2018, 19, 20 looking at all these things for what do we do in the next downturn if we can't get inflation to our target. And so they really had a clear idea, I think, of how they would react. And then they reacted when the pandemic hit. Uh, but we haven't been in an environment with inflation this high. So uh, so you sort of can't be terribly confident that what the Fed did in the last three cycles when inflation wasn't as high as it is right now is exactly how they would react in this cycle. Yes, and a lot of you know, macroeconomists who look at forward, um, excuse me, forward-looking indicators like the you know, housing or the yield curve inversion of the copper to gold ratio, that is not necessarily what the Federal Reserve is focusing on. They are focusing on the labor market with you know, the unemployment rate still at 3.6% is very healthy. So, so you know, uh, Powell earlier in the year was uh, you know, noting that, that uh, you could do a soft landing. Inflation could moderate, but inflation uh, unemployment would not materially rise. You know, maybe five, six percent, but but not above then. But now suddenly, Powell has uh, been talking about a soft-ish landing. What do you think a soft-ish landing looks like? Yeah, that's a great question. I actually I asked him that in the in the May uh, interview, um, and you know, I. You know, you'd have to think it's something close to a mild recession, maybe a technical recession. Um, if you look at the June SEP and one of the changes they actually made uh, after the framework review, they used to release uh, kind of supplemental materials to the SEP with the minutes. And now they release it with the SEP. So if you go to page five of the June SEP, you can actually see the distribution of participant projections for the change in real GDP. We get the median in that, you know, that first chart, you get the median and the central tendency in the range, but you can actually see, and if you get out your ruler, you can count up the number of projections in each column for GDP or inflation. And what you see there is, is a good half of the committee, uh, more than half in 22 and 23 saying GDP under appropriate policy is gonna be below trend. And in some cases, significantly below trend. So for next year, you've got one person who wrote down um, GDP year uh, year end between 0.8 and 0.9. Point here, my point here is that a lot of people are saying you're going to need to have two years of GDP below trend. 
And they can't fine tune this, right? If you get, you know, if you think you might get GDP at 1%, you could just, you, you could very easily slip down to zero or negative. So they're saying, what they're saying here is under appropriate policy, you will have the, you know, growth below trend. You will have the unemployment rate rising. That could be as close to a, a projection of a recession. I don't know if if you're ever going to get a projection of a recession in the SCP that, uh, you know, I, I'm sure there, I guess there could be scenarios where you see that, but I think it would be hard politically to just say, yeah, appropriate policy here is going to be a recession. Um, so they may not project it, and this may be as close as you get. So, um, so yeah, I think, you know, a softish landing would be consistent with a technical recession or a mild recession. And, um, and, and you're hearing that more. I mean, Powell talked about a soft landing in his March testimony to Congress. This was early March. The war in Ukraine had just begun. And he said, I think we have a better than even chance, something like that. He basically gave them, you know, better than 50-50 chance of having a soft landing. To my knowledge, he has not said anything like that since then. Uh, he gave his NABE speech uh, five days after the March FOMC meeting where he said it would be difficult, uh, but he thought, you know, it was possible. And now when he talks about it, he, he never brings it up himself. He never says, this is what we're trying to do here. No, he, he's saying we're trying to restore price stability and there's a plausible path to having a soft landing. And, you know, it, it's almost aspirational at this point, but it's secondary to their goal of getting inflation down. Now, you do hear other Reserve Bank presidents like Jim Bullard saying that that's still his baseline. But the fact that you're not hearing that from the chair uh, suggests that, you know, that, that they may not be completely, uh, you know, convinced that this is the, the, the modal or baseline outlook at this point. Uh, we'll see. You know, I'm sure he'll get asked about it at the press conference tomorrow. Yes. Um how are you thinking about the uh, real GDP figures? I believe the, the real GDP figures you just uh, referred to in the uh, SEP are uh, year over year, whereas I know the um, Q4, yeah, Q4, 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 whereas the Atlanta Fed projections is annualized quarter over quarter. And last quarter was negative real GDP. Uh, this one that's coming out on Thursday, I believe from the uh, uh, BEA, that could be negative. I mean, you know, I, I, yeah. just, I just look at, look at the data and it, um, it, the, Fed is, the Atlanta Fed is rarely uh, wrong by a sufficient margin to make it positive. I think the last reading was something like negative 1.5. So if we have two consecutive quarters of real GDP contraction, you know, a lot of folks consider that a recession. I know the, the NBER may not consider that a recession, but how does the, the Federal Reserve think about it? How does the Treasury think about it? Well, so we heard from Janet Yellen on uh, Sunday. She was on Meet the Press, and she basically said, you know, there are special factors. I mean, look up, if you look at the first quarter, and Powell has already addressed this. I mean, if you look at private final demand, where you're taking out uh, imports, uh, you're taking out inventories, and you're looking at sort of the underlying strength of the consumer that was a positive number. Now, it's been revised down uh, since the last meeting, uh, you know, and so but it's still it's still consistent with sort of trend growth in the economy. So I don't I don't think that there's a whole lot of um, there's not a lot to say about the Q1 report in terms of, 
you know, were we in a recession in January when we were still adding 400,000 jobs a month or 300 plus? Uh, in the second quarter, is going to be interesting. It'll be interesting to see where consumption is. Obviously, uh, the housing market, residential investment starting to weaken. But again, I mean, this is what the Fed wants to see right now. They want to slow the economy down. And uh, and so it, it shouldn't be, you know, it, it'll be interesting to see what happens when you have negative employment reports. I think negative growth numbers, especially when you can kind of point to special factors, um, you know, it, it. I'm not sure that there's as big of a story there. And, and go look at what Chris Waller has said recently. Governor Waller has been asked about this and he's pointed to the discrepancy between GDP and GDI, uh, gross domestic income. Over time, the two should basically you know, meet somewhere in the middle. And so he sort of suggested that maybe the GDP numbers are going to get revised up. Maybe there is more weakness there than you see in the uh, in the gross domestic income numbers. But, uh, you know, th that's sort of, uh, you know, something to keep your eye on is is GDP versus uh, GDI. And again, I think the more difficult questions happen when you actually see uh, signs of contraction in or or a real slowdown in uh, personal consumption expenditures and um, and, and you know uh, private fi final demand actually um, slowing down a lot more than what we saw in the first quarter. Right, but but if there is a Fed pivot uh, when it happens, if it happens at all, will it likely be stress in the labor market that causes that pivot rather than some? other piece of data that, that isn't related to the labor market? Yeah, I, that's a great question. I don't know the answer, but I, I wouldn't I wouldn't expect to see. I mean, they've they've said they want to see a slowdown in inflation. So, you know, the growth numbers are saying something, uh, but the inflation numbers are saying something different Then you have to you have to at least pay attention to what they're saying they're paying attention to, which is inflation. Now, obviously, at some point, you have a forecast of inflation that maybe becomes relevant because you're seeing a lot more slowth in slowdown, slow growth in, uh, you know, in, in real activity. Uh, and, and Waller alluded to that in his July 14th uh, comments in Idaho. He basically suggested there was, you know, something to um, something to keep an eye on there. But they're going to want to see actual slowdowns in inflation in part because they were wrong-footed last year. I mean, if you go back to a lot of people say, well, they should never have said transitory and they certainly shouldn't have stuck to it as long as they did. But uh, one of the reasons I think they did was when the Delta variant hit, you did see a slowdown in some of those categories that had surged. And so actually their initial thesis that you know this is related to the reopening of the economy and it's being driven by pandemic, used cars, airfares, et cetera, uh, and as you saw, sort of the uh, non-pandemic related items having less inflation in July and August of last year, they said, OK, see, you know, we, we can we can take some comfort from that. Well, you know, uh, fool me once, shame on you, fool me twice, shame on me. So I think th there's going to be an even higher bar there. Um, but we don't know. You know, it's a big committee now. Uh, you're at full strength with 12 people. You've got some new governors uh, and uh, new uh, Boston Fed president at this meeting will have a new Dallas Fed president, Lori Logan, at the next meeting. Uh, and so committee dynamics are, you know, can kind of can kind of create their own uh, 
forces. And I go back to this point I made before, which is we don't really understand their reaction function in a high inflation environment because we haven't been in one in a long time. And I'm not sure they do either. And so, you know, that's got to be what they're working out right now as they go into this meeting. Who would you say are the most uh, dovish members, if, if there are any doves left, or, or the least hawkish members of the FOMC? And then who are the most hawkish who really want to lead the charge into, you know, getting that effect, the Fed fund rate up? You know, that's another great question, Jack. And I, I say I don't know. I think some of these things have been turned on their head. I mean, at the beginning of the year, you know, if you had like a Fed bingo card, uh, a lot of people didn't have consecutive 75 basis point increases on it. Uh, they didn't have Esther George with a dovish dissent at at least one meeting. And we'll see if she dissents again tomorrow. So, you know, in the past, I mean, look at Esther George's voting record. She had a number of hawkish dissents 10 years ago. And now someone who you might point to as a, as a quote unquote hawk is dissenting for dovish reasons. Then you have Minneapolis Fed President Neil Kashkari, who was constantly a dove and, you know, dissenting, saying, why are we raising rates on a forecast of higher inflation? This was five, six years ago um, and continuing to take that position up through the pandemic. You know, he self-disclosed after the June SCP that he had the highest dot, at least for this year, next year in the in the in the June SCP. So, you know, if you'd asked me this 12 months ago, I would have said, you know, Kashkari is a dove and George is a hawk. But if you're asking me today, I'd have a completely different answer. Um, and so, you, you know, if, so let's just go on what people have, have said publicly recently. I mean, Bowman has clearly laid out a marker that she wants, uh, you know, she, I think she said a 75 at this meeting. And that was when, you know, the choice on the table was really between 50 and 75. And then she wanted to continue with 50s after that. Uh, Waller and Bullard. Uh, have been on the hawkish end, obviously. Um, and then you've had, I mean, I, I don't know that there are true doves when you're in an inflation environment like this, but you have heard from people like Charlie Evans, the Chicago Fed president, Pat Harker, the Philadelphia Fed president, uh, maybe more eager, I think, to get back to 25s at some point. Um, but still, it was notable when when Charlie Evans came out a few weeks ago and said he thought 75 would be appropriate for this meeting. So uh, there are no doves in inflation foxholes. And um, and at some point, I imagine we will see more of a debate around, uh, you know, getting back to a quote unquote measured pace. But I do not see that, you know, happening uh, right now. Uh, and we'll have to see kind of where the Fed speak comes out as people uh, sort of uh, communicate after this meeting. Uh, but, you know, the last inflation number was high. It was broad-based. Uh, Dallas, Fed, uh, you know, trim mean, Dallas Fed trim mean printing pretty high, I think 4.4% on a six-month annualized basis. Uh, very hard to point to things right now that would give you justification uh, to be dovish, at least on the inflation side. Yes, and that last reading, uh, CPI, uh, sort of the mainstream uh, index was at 9.1% year-over-year increase. Uh, PCE, which is what the Fed looks at, was at 6.3%. I know the Federal Reserve has uh, issued a statement, and correct me if I'm using the wrong words, but a uh, they need to have a clear and compelling evidence that inflation is moderating before they 
start to to ease policy or stop tightening policy. What do you think a clear think was, and compelling I think evidence? It was, yeah, clear and compelling was sort of the the threshold that Powell had laid out when they were doing fifties, and so he was saying to take things down to twenty five. Uh, you know, they would want clear and compelling evidence. It's harder now, I think, to sort of well. What do you need to step down from 75 to 50 and then from 50 to 25? I mean, that was really where 75 opened up more of a can of worms there. And Powell came out and said at the last meeting, you know, they don't expect 75 to be common. Um, so maybe that was a way of saying, you know, we'll do it. We'll do one more of these and don't expect it to be, you know, 75s until we get clear and compelling. But th that is something that I think they're going to have to work through and communicate more. Um, you know, at least here you could say you couldn't do this six weeks ago, but now you can at least point to things that you would think would give them help on at least on the headline inflation. Right. Gas prices are down. Commodity prices are down. Uh, core, maybe not. I mean, the, this this interesting wedge had opened up between core CPI uh, and core PCE you know, almost almost two point difference between them, in part because of the different calculations around airfares in the CPI. Uh, shelter takes up a bigger component of the CPI basket. Um, but now, actually, you're moving into an environment where maybe uh, core PCE is you're going to close that gap with core PCE moving higher. Um, that certainly seems likely for this report we're getting this week. If you look at the forecasts from uh, some of the Wall Street shops. Uh, so, yeah, it's 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 going to be tricky to thread the needle here if you want to see clear and compelling evidence that uh, core inflation is coming down. Uh, you know, what do you do if you don't get that, but you do see more of a slowdown in the real economy? Uh, it'll be really interesting to, to see how the different policymakers kind of work through um, the, that sort of uh, predicament. Nick, a key theme for Fed Chair Powell was saying that financial conditions needed to be tighter. Now, I think the, the sort of mainstream uh, interpretation of financial conditions, like something like the Goldman Sachs uh, Index, Financial Conditions Index, is risk-free rates, so that's the Fed funds rate, as well as the 10-year Treasury, credit spreads, as well as equity prices. So what Fed Chair Powell was saying uh, that financial conditions need to be tighter, effectively, the message was stocks need to be lower, bond prices need to be lower, spreads need to be higher. We're doing our job on risk free rates, but the market, you need to do your job. Uh, how much of that journey do you, first of all, do you, do you agree with my in, in interpretation? And, and secondly, how much of that journey of tightening of financial conditions needs to happen? You know, if there, let's say there's there's a terminal uh, Fed funds rate of 3.5% in December, that's how high the Fed needs to go to, to moderate inflation. You know, how high do you think we are from a, a top in like credit spreads or, or equity price? Yeah, uh, that's a great question. You know, when I did an interview in April with um, now she's the vice chair, Leo Brainerd, uh, and, you know, I asked about kind of a neutral policy rate and she kept she sort of was talking about neutral financial conditions, which is a little bit different. And, you know, I, I have detected a desire on the part of at least some people on the FOMC to get away from talking about a neutral rate because, you know, their long run estimate of neutral is when inflation's at 2%, but inflation's not at 2% right now. So you have to, I think, take this estimate that neutral is between, you know, the, the range is, I think, 2 to 3%. People say it's around, you know, 2.5%, give or take, quarter point. But, you know, it's hard to have a lot of confidence in that in normal times. And it's even harder when inflation, underlying inflation, has probably moved up. 
so Mary Daly, for example, said recently that you know her estimate of neutral uh, of, a, of a real neutral rate was about 0.5, but she thinks that underlying inflation has moved up to 2.6. So she thinks that a neutral rate would be closer to 3.1. Nominal neutral in the in the short run is you know closer to 3.1. Um, so I think that there's been an emphasis by some people, including Brainerd, to look at, well, can we get to a neutral or then to tight financial conditions? And that's where you get into some of these interesting, maybe more arcane debates about, is it the level of the funds rate that matters or is it this, do you get any benefit from speed effects? Um, I hear a lot of people, a lot of economists saying, no, there, there's no such thing as a speed effect. Raising rates faster doesn't actually tighten, uh, doesn't get you to neutral uh, faster. But I've heard some economists outside the Fed, Lou Crandall um, at Rights and ICAP is one who's basically said, no, I, I do think that there's such a thing as a speed effect and you can have, a, you can achieve a neutral financial conditions or tight financial conditions, depending on how quickly you move. And there may be some uh, sign of that in the housing market. If you look at the housing market, you know, I thought there was a good case earlier this year that uh, you might see, you know, the market able to handle a five percent or five and a quarter percent rate, which had really began to slow down the housing market back in 2018. At the end of 2018, when we got there, you saw the builders beginning to say, "All right, this is a completely different environment for us." If we had just stayed around five and a quarter, I think the housing market had more going for it this time in terms of pandemic-driven shifts in demand, much tighter inventories. But the speed with which we moved from the low fives to the high fives and, you know, for a brief period there, we were above six, that takes people out of the market and they just say, OK, hold on, I'm I'm out. I'm, I'm going to wait. I'm going to step back here. And uh, and again, this is only one sector of the economy, but I do think it's one place where you can maybe test out this idea of a of a speed effect that going from where we were at the end of last year, three three and a quarter, and almost doubling uh, the mortgage rate, sharp increase in the monthly payment. People buy their house. They sit down to decide what they're going to purchase based on that monthly nut. And when they've seen that it's gone up 40% or 50% from where that kitchen table discussion was back in December, that has an impact. Do they think that they've done enough on uh, tightening financial conditions well, you know, we're going to need to see it in the inflation data because that's the benchmark that they've laid out. Um, and that, you know, sort of gets into this idea, well, if the market's pricing in cuts now and you see long end yields coming down and financial conditions easing because of that, uh, you know, if the dollar were to weaken here, you, you get actually easier financial conditions because markets are pricing in a recession and, and a reaction function that implies the Fed cutting right away. Does that actually mean the Fed is now further from where it needs to be? And so the more the market prices in ease, does the Fed then say, all right, well, you know, this isn't tight enough. Uh, the, the, the beatings will continue until morale improves. We're going to 4% on our terminal rate. We'll see. I think those are interesting questions ahead of us. Yeah, I'm glad you mentioned the dollar because that's sort of the hidden element within financial conditions because as the dollar strengthens against other currencies, it can just d diminish uh, liquidity worldwide. So how does the you know, Federal Reserve think about the surge in the, the DXY, the US dollar index? You know, the euro was briefly at parity. The euro has been falling sharply against the dollar. The yen has been falling sharply against the dollar. You know, pretty much every currency has been falling against the dollar. 
typically, you know, the Fed can get very, very worried about that as they did uh, during March 2020, as you, as you cover uh, in your book, Trillion Dollar Triage. You know, they extended you know, trillions of, of swap lines uh, uh, across the globe. But now the DXY is higher, much higher than it was in March of 2020. So is there at some point that the, you know, is the, is the rising dollar in service of the Federal Reserve's goals to tighten inflation? And at what point does it become a threat to financial stability? That's a great question. I mean, yeah, this is a completely different situation from, uh, say, 2014. I think in 2014, you actually had Bill Dudley, the New York Fed president, out there saying, yeah, the dollar's gone up, I don't remember, 20, 25 percent. And that, you know, that's going to that's going to influence their ability to get inflation back up to 2 percent. Now, you know, a strong dollar is helping them out. Um, you're right. They don't want to have uh, a market repair, a market crack up event. Um, so, uh, so I, I imagine at, at some point, you know, you, you don't want things to get disorderly, but a stronger dollar is helping the Fed right now. You saw import prices last month, you know, negative 0.5% on the month. Uh, I think that was the first negative reading since the pandemic and, you know, negative import prices, falling import prices are going to help the Fed here. So, you know, this isn't um, this isn't a concern for them the way it was in March 2020 or, uh, you know, 2014, 2015, where uh, the dollar was tightening financial conditions more than the Fed had uh, had had wanted. Nick, I've heard anecdotal reports of the members of the FOMC, as well as Fed Chair Powell himself, extremely resolved to not make the same mistakes uh, of, let's say, Arthur Burns, who was the Fed chair president uh, during the 1970s, who did not tighten monetary policy enough. Inflation became unanchored until the hero uh, that we all know and love, Paul, you know, Paul Volcker, raised rates, caused two recessions, um, but but you know, moderated inflation for, for decades to come. Uh, how So I hear that it's essentially gossip, but how, you know, you're very well sourced. How accurate is that characterization? Yeah, it's. I mean, it depends, I guess, on what it, what the exact characterization is. But you know, there was this story that Randy Corals, the former Fed vice chair, told at the the Hoover conference uh, in early May at Stanford. And just to relate it quickly uh, to anybody who hasn't heard it, you know, he was asked, or he was on a panel with Jim Bullard and Chris Waller, and and they were all asked, uh, you know, if. It, you need a five and a half percent unemployment rate to get inflation down. Will this committee do that? And Jim Bullard sort of, you know, said, I think that's a question for Randy because uh, the, the current policymakers, that's a harder question to answer. Right? Do, you, do you really want to say you think you need the, the unemployment rate to go up by two percentage points and however many millions of people to lose their jobs that that entails? But Rand, so Randy Quarles said, I'll answer that question and I'll tell you a story. And he explained that you know he he commuted between uh, Washington D.C. and Salt Lake City, where his family lived. His family had moved to D.C. when he was at the Treasury twenty years ago, and he didn't want to move him here again. So uh, he would just uh, spend the week in Washington, which meant he was able to work late into the night in the Eccles Building. And he also explained that he had this habit of triggering a security alarm in his office that would send security officers into his office late at night and they finally realized he just does this so they stopped responding but one night there was a security officer who was new or didn't know that corals kept hitting the button so the security officer came running and and then corals went on to explain that there's art on he had some art on the walls and this particular security officer was something of an art buff and uh and so corals was explaining some of the different works of art on the wall and he said he had as a memento mori uh, a painting by arthur burns 
And he began to explain why, you know, it, it would be sort of ironic for a Fed governor to put a, an Arthur Burns painting on the wall. But the security officer stopped him and said, I know who that guy is. He's the guy who let inflation get out of control. And everybody at the conference laughed. And then he went on to explain, you know, you can you can be a Fed that causes recessions and people may not remember you. Every Fed chair, uh, except maybe for Janet Yellen, has had to deal with a recession. But if you're the person who doesn't keep a lid on inflation, and we've all agreed now is sort of the way that this economic uh, system we have has been structured, the, the Fed is in charge of inflation. The whole reason people talk about or maybe fetishize Fed independence is because you want the Fed to be able to do what they need to do uh, if inflation gets out of control. And so Quarles said, so the answer to your question, would the Fed permit a five and a half percent unemployment rate if that was what it took to get inflation. And he said, yes. And it's because people don't want to be, you know, people don't want to be remembered. Uh, Chair Powell in particular doesn't want to be remembered uh, as sort of the second coming of Arthur Burns. Now, there are other people who are worried that maybe that, you know, if you if you if you make sure, I think, as we saw last year, you know, the Fed was so focused on not repeating the mistakes of 2008, 9, 10, 11, 12, and so they went all in. Uh, don't pull back your tools until it's clear that you've you've uh, you know got the economy going. And they didn't make the mistakes of 2008, 9, and 10. They made new mistakes. And so again, if you try to fight the war of you know the 70s, obviously there's a risk you're going to make completely new mistakes. And then you know two or three years from now, you and I will be talking about well, it, you know, shouldn't they have stopped sooner or shouldn't? And you, know, you kind of get into that parlor game that academics call counterfactuals, right? The what if game. Well, what if, you know, the, the Fed had raised rates a ton in 2004 and five and avoided a housing bubble, um, right? We just, you'll never know. And so that's, I think, sort of the situation that people are going to find themselves in right now. You know what the mistakes were that you made in the past. So you can, you can try to make sure you don't do, say, the stop-go policy. People talk about, you know, the Fed pause here is sort of Larry Summers, for example, is talking about the Fed can't pause when they normally would, because then you won't actually slay the inflation dragon and the recession in 1974, 75, where Burns eased. Inflation came down from, say, 10 percent to 6 percent, but then it started to go up again. Obviously, you wouldn't want to get into a, a similar situation there. Um, Don Cohn, who was a life uh, Fed lifer and ended his service as vice chair to um, to Ben Bernanke, uh, made a different point to me recently, and he made, he made this point at a at a conference at the Dallas Fed last month, where he said, "Look, you know, there was the Volcker moment that everybody talks about in '79 and '81, changing the operating regime, targeting the money supply, raising rates to much higher levels than he had anticipated they would go to bring down inflation." But then there was a second Volcker moment in the summer of 1982, where that same, uh, you know, mon monetary aggregate targeting regime would have called for staying tight. And inflation was coming down; it had come down a lot, but it was still at five percent. And he said, "All right, that's enough. You know, you, you were at that point looking at losing, you know, part of the southern hemisphere and bringing down big U.S. banks with exposure to Latin America." And so Volcker called time and said, "We've done enough." And then actually the Fed did start to raise interest rates again in May of 1983, 
uh, you know, through the rest of the year. And so people don't talk about that as stop go because obviously by then the Fed had done enough and you just had 4% inflation for the rest of the decade. Uh, so, you know, they're, they're going to have to feel their way, way here and history can provide some useful guides. But, you know, the situation, you could make good arguments that the situation we're in today is a lot like the situation in the 1970s where you had oil shocks and, and bad luck. You know, you had a drought, uh, high crop prices in 72, 73. But you could also argue that the structure of the economy is different. Uh, and and that that would call for a different response, and we'll see. I think it's a perfect transition to talk about inflation expectations. That's not what inflation actually is, but what do people think it's going to be? Uh, both the market uh, inflation break-even rate, but also perhaps more importantly, uh, the consumer expectations of, of inflation. I I believe uh, the last uh, June FOMC meeting not only was it a high inflation reading, but also was a Michigan consumer uh, survey that indicated that consumers' expectations of inflation were going up. And that was what, what uh, occasioned the 75 basis point rise instead of the 50 basis point rise. Uh, is that what people, uh, is that what is meant by Fed credibility? Because in your last uh, the FOMC meeting, you, you asked uh, Jay Powell about credibility. Is that, is that what you mean, the ability to constrain inflation expectations? Or is, does credibility mean something different? Yeah, no, that's a great question. So, you know, my question there at the June meeting was really about they had they had laid out a whole strategy for how they were going to conduct policy, which was really 50s until inflation comes down. And they had communicated that very unusually precisely. Right. Um, it wasn't just Powell. It was everybody on the FOMC. And then they did something different at that meeting. And so the question there was, you know, you had to weigh the cost of of potentially undermining your guidance by by wrong footing in the market when you had given a very precise uh, guidance or steer. Uh, and so the cost, that was really the question was about the cost of making your guidance less credible versus the cost of falling further behind uh, the curve. If you thought you were if you thought you were behind the curve and falling even further behind it, that clear and clearly that was the calculus that they made there, that Powell made uh, at that meeting was, you know, he, he talked about how if you thought maybe you were going to do 75 at some point in the future, well, why wasn't that the right decision to do then? Why, you know, they had sort of fallen into this position where they were doing the more conservative thing, right? In March, they could have done 50, but the war in Ukraine had just started. Uh, they hadn't done liftoff yet, so they did 25. Uh, and and then, you know, right after that, Powell goes out and give us, gives a, a more hawkish speech saying maybe we're going to do 50s. The same thing I think had happened in November where Powell, in the December meeting, when they accelerated the taper, he'd said, you know, the ECI came out before that November meeting was very hot. He had sort of begun to think maybe we should accelerate the taper, but they didn't do it. And then they, you know, the data broke hard in their face in November and they, and they changed. So, you know, that was the question I was getting at at the June meeting. Now, I hear a lot that the Fed lacks credibility in the markets, right? You hear that all the time right now. And I always am sort of confused about what people mean when they say that, because one interpretation is that the market actually doesn't think the Fed is going to do what's necessary to, to bring inflation down. To me, when people say the Fed lacks credibility in the market, that's what I th that's how I interpret it. Uh, but if you look at market based inflation measures uh, and maybe they're entirely wrong, uh, they, they sure were one year ago. 
But the market right now has brought down substantially their, their expectations of where CPI is 12 months ahead. So the market now expects CPI, this is from uh, ICE Benchmark Administration, to end the year around 7%. That's down from about 7.4% a month ago. You know, one year ago, the market thought CPI would end this year at 2.4%. At uh, and the market now thinks CPI will end 2023 at 2.8%. So the market there is saying that they think one way or another, whether it's a Fed policy error, whether it's a recession, whether it's a steep Phillips curve, whether it's the supply chain completely you know, fixing itself here, they think we're going to get lower inflation and not just a little bit lower inflation, but a lot lower inflation a year from now. Again, if those measures based off of uh, uh, tips and swaps are 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 accurate. Um, so I think when so the other answer is when people say the Fed has lost credibility, they're just talking about sort of forecast uh, reputational credibility. But that to me is is completely. Uh, it's an important point, but it's a separate point because if a central bank has lost credibility and infl- because inflation's high, uh, then wouldn't you expect to see, you know, a situation where the Fed turns more hawkish and the market prices in still higher inflation into the future, right? That, that That's sort of what we saw maybe around the May meeting, but we haven't seen it since then. And so, uh, you know, I think there are different types of credibility and it's helpful for people to talk about what they mean uh, when they talk about credibility. You can have, you know, your guidance not being credible because you said you were going to do 25 and you did 50, like what happened with the ECB last week, or you said you were going to do 50 and you did 75. Um, but uh, you know, I think also if if you do that every single time, then you will your guidance will obviously be less credible. It'll be useless at, at a certain point. Uh, so you know, maybe the maybe the lesson there is. Uh, do that only when you think it's an emergency and, uh, you know, and you don't do it uh, after every hot CPI print, for example, which was sort of, I think, the message we heard from Chris Waller uh, two weeks ago. And guidance does not just refer to the dot plot. It's also the statements of senior Fed officials. Yeah, there's a suite of there's a suite of communications. You know, the dot plot. uh a lot of you know, there's a lot of opinions about that, and and whether it's it, it's more helpful than not, uh, especially when you're conditioning it on a on a modal outlook. And what if you know there's a big distribution of of potential outcomes, but you're really only showing what your reaction function is under one, and then you add to that that you've got you know up to 19 people that could have different modal outlooks, and so they're putting together their own. You know, it's 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 an imperfect tool, um, and you know we've never had it in an environment of uh, sort of the extreme uh, uh, high inflation that we have right now. Um, so it's you know we're we're, t- we're sort of testing it in a little a little bit in the same way that if you think back you know three years ago this was the meeting where the Fed cut, and we had never been through at that point having a SCP where you were going into a cutting cycle. There was a question, I think, at that June 2019 meeting, can the Fed even project cuts in the SCP? Or do you, if you think you're going to need to cut, do you just cut? Uh, so, uh, yeah, you know, there's, there's more, there are more ways for them to communicate, and that can make it uh, more complicated at times, 
and it can, you know, it can help them as, as you know, Charlie Evans, again, as he argued it had in March, it allowed them to project a lot more tightening ahead of their action. Uh, but you do get into, you know, all of the analysts sort of saying, well, what does this mean? Why are you doing this? Uh, Nick, I know there have been instances where the Fed has cut rates in between FOMC meetings just because there's not enough time, uh, most notably in March of 2020. Some people I've seen speculate, and I don't know how much credence I give this, that the Federal Reserve will do an emergency rate hike. How are you weighing this possibility? Is this something that is even being talked about at the Fed? Um, I mean, look, I, I guess you can never say never, especially after the year that we've had. But I don't understand. I, I don't understand the rationale for an intermediate hike. If the Fed chair comes out and says, we're going to hike a lot at our next meeting, then the market prices it in and you've done, you've basically, haven't you basically accomplished the point of the intermediate cut? I, I don't, you know, maybe there's a scenario where, you know, if there was some sort of, uh, you know, disaster unfolding in currency markets, I, I don't know. If you have ideas, email me about a situation where an intermediate cut I guess the question I would have, though, is what's the difference between the Fed chair just giving a speech where you get the market to say, OK, well, this is what the Fed's going to do, you know, in four weeks or five. You have a meeting every six, seven or eight weeks. Uh, so, uh, you know, the reason why there's an asymmetry, there's a, there is a definite policy asymmetry there, right? They can cut, they can ease without telling people in advance and you can take the market by surprise. And And part of that, I think, is because you know, there is a desire to not completely uh, interrupt or impair market functioning, right? And you don't have to worry about that if you cut uh, and then there's a surprise cut. Um, you know, there's also an argument that you sometimes you can't wait to cut because things are so intense. And, uh, you know, there were, I remember, you know, we and I write about this in, in Trillion Dollar Trios. There were people that weekend in March 15th saying you can't wait another day. They can't wait another day. You're, you're going to begin to have, you know, uh, like a lot of breaking glass, metal crunching on metal here uh, and, uh, you know, eating the seed corn, all the analogies. And so the Fed does, in ex you know, those sorts of emergencies will do emergency cuts and and. You know, I'm young. Maybe there's some scenario I haven't thought of where uh, the you know an intermediate hike would be uh, would accomplish something that the Fed chair going out and giving a speech saying you know we'll hike a lot at our next meeting wouldn't accomplish. But um, I haven't yet encountered sort of the right um, example. I think where you do hear where I hear that more is just from people who think the Fed is so ridiculously behind the curve. How can they not be getting rates up to 4% right now when they need to be there? Um, but I think that's somewhat of a different uh, issue. That's, that's more an objection with the underlying policy than with the tactics. Right. In which case, the Fed could just forward guide, say, we're going to do 100 basis points for the, the next three meetings or something like that. Uh, you know, Nick, uh, it, it's been an hour. I'm only going to have a, a few more minutes left with you, but I'd like to ask you about the balance sheet. Uh, we've been talking so much about rates, so much focuses on that. But the the fact of the matter is, the Federal Reserve's balance sheet is shrinking, uh, with you know billions of treasuries and mortgage-backed securities uh, rolling off, not selling, but rolling off from the balance sheet. How do, is the Federal Reserve? You know, there, there's not a lot of news because it just sort of happens. But how is the Federal Reserve 
uh, thinking about the process. Is, is balance sheet roll-off achieving its goals? Is there any chance that there would be a, a ramp up? Um, I know we're, we're not quite there to the $95 billion roll-up. So yeah, so tell, tell us about that. And then also, you know, anything, any particular news you'll have your eye on for tomorrow? Yeah, the balance sheet policy, I mean, if you listen to what they've said about it, uh, you know, Powell got in trouble, I guess, in December of 18 when he said it was an automatic pilot. Um, so maybe they'll come up with a different word now. Maybe it's on cruise control. Uh, but that is, I think, how they think about it. That is how they've communicated their own view of it. They see it as a secondary tool. You know, Ch- Charlie Evans, again, he gave he, he made this comment somewhere recently where he said, uh, you know, forward guidance and and the balance sheet. Uh, they're sometimes they're talked about as as, you know, tools that the Fed has, but they're all in service of the primary tool. Right. They're all you're rowing. I think the way to think about this is you, they always need to be working in the same direction. So either you're tightening policy and all of your tools are moving in that way. You either don't use forward guidance, uh, you know, when you're when you're raising rates because you no longer need it or you're using it to 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 tighten policy, to communicate tighter policies coming. And the balance sheet, they've treated it the same way. So until they change their order of operations, and I've heard nothing from any of the comments that anybody has made publicly to suggest that they are thinking about using the balance sheet differently. I mean, the, the only, I think, live issue out there in the future for the balance sheet is um, that they haven't really answered is MBS sales, right? They've said that they would they would consider doing that, but they've made it seem like that's not a decision for this year, um, that that would be something they would do later. They would be doing that not to achieve some sort of uh, tighter policy outcome, but because they want to speed the composition towards a mostly treasuries portfolio faster. So aside from that, I know there are questions right now about how the Fed would react. Well, what does the Fed do if they get into a situation where they are cutting? And what does that mean for the balance sheet? And we we have you know a limited number of samples, really one, which is what they did in July of 2019. It was three years ago at this meeting that they cut. That was the beginning of the three 25 basis point quote unquote, mid-cycle adjustment. I mean, we don't know if it was mid-cycle, if there had been no pandemic, maybe it would have been mid-cycle, we'll never know. But they they stopped the balance sheet runoff at that meeting. I believe that they were already on track to end, to end the runoff later that year. I think maybe it was September, I'd have to check. But anyway, they said, well, we're cutting, so we're stopping the balance sheet runoff. It, until they say otherwise, I think that, you know, that's the inference you would have to take is that that's how they would act again. But I agree. It's a good question uh, to, uh, you know, to, to put in front of these people to understand whether that reaction function has changed. Right. So again, we don't know which order, but the first thing is going to be cutting rates. It's not, there's never, there's not going to be an environment in which rates continue to go up, but QT stops. I, again, I mean, I'm sure you can come up with, with, with scenarios where, you know, for uh, there could be technical reasons why they would do one and not the other. But as they've articulated sort of their reaction function, that I mean, that, that's been their order of operations, right, has been, first of all, your tools move in the same direction at the same time. Now, you know, they've said maybe that, you know, if there's some unforeseen, you think about what happened in the repo market in September 2019, where they were actually you know, increasing their balance sheet after that to add reserves because they concluded they had taken too many out of the market. Um, so, uh, you know, are there are there sort of scenarios like that? Um, of course, this time you do have the standing repo facility, which some people have argued 
gives them uh, maybe more room uh, or, or less concern that they would that they would go too far uh, in terms of running down reserves. But, um, you know, if you just look at how they did things last time, that was what they did last time. They stopped raising. They stopped raising rates in uh, January 2019 was when Powell said, you know, we'll pause. Um, and then uh, I think it was in the March meeting that it was either January or March where they also decided that they were going to run an ample reserves regime. So at that point, they hadn't decided really. I mean, for all intents and purposes, they had sort of acted that way, but they formally announced we're in an ample reserves regime. So we'll end with a higher balance sheet. And that would allow us to reduce the slow the pace at which we're allowing assets to run off. They did that at the March meeting. So I think it was from March to September they were planning to slow the runoff of the of the of the of the asset portfolio. And then they prematurely by one month or two months in July of 2019 said, all right, we're we're gonna we're gonna hold the balance sheet here now. Um, it, it's possible they were still letting mortgages run off after that because they wanted to have an all treasuries portfolio. I'd have to check. Uh, Nick, what do you think is, are there going to be the most important piece, uh, pieces of news that we're going to get clarity on tomorrow? Sort of as you, you're, you're writing and taking notes as Fed Chair Powell will be speaking tomorrow and you'll eventually ask him a question, uh, what are the things that you're going to be paying a special attention to? Well, it's, it's like I wrote in, in, in my story today. I, I think the big question really is on uh, uh, what do they signal for the next meeting? Do they signal anything? Because at the last two meetings, he's basically walked in there and said, for the next meeting, here's what's on the table. So does he do that again? Obviously, people care about that. And I wrote about that today. Uh, and there are reasons to think that that's the strategy that's worked so far. There's reasons to think that maybe it, there's uh, uh, less of a uh passing the cost benefit test once you've got rates up this high, once in, you know, you're you're closer, to, you're at least closer to neutral, even if you're not at neutral, if you do 75 tomorrow. Um, you know, obviously people have a lot of questions about the terminal rate and the reaction function for cutting. Uh, do you, you know, when do the cuts come? And I don't know how, um, how much clarity you get on these things that are still always, um, you know, if, if you're still talking about raising rates to th between three and four percent this year, and you're at two and a quarter. I don't know how much, uh, you know, they they're talking about these other things. What what do you do after that? But um, I'm sure people will ask those questions, and uh, we'll, you know, we'll see how much uh, the committee over the next couple of weeks is prepared to talk about those things. We will. Nick, it's been a total pleasure having you on Forward Guidance. Thank you so much. Thank you, everyone, for watching the FOMC meeting tomorrow. Definitely will be something to watch. You should uh, follow Nick Timoros on Twitter at uh, Nick Timoros, uh, T-I-M-I-R-A-O-S. Definitely check out his book, Trillion Dollar Triage. I loved it. You're going to love it. And also, if, if you have the Wall Street Journal app, uh, there's a thing, a button you can press to so you can get a notification for every single story, uh, as I did this morning. Nick, thank you so much. Thanks for having me, Jack. There is something that you need to be doing right now, and that is reading the BlockWorks daily newsletter. For top market insights and the latest in crypto news, you have to subscribe to the BlockWorks daily newsletter, and you can do so by clicking on the link in the description to this video or by visiting blockworks.co forward slash newsletter.